So December 18th, does that date mean anything to you? Well, it should, because it's the opening day of Star Wars Episode Seven. <laughs> I was at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary a few weeks ago. I'm, I'm taking some classes there, and uh, I, I was walking by a, a young lady, and she had a Star Wars t-shirt on. And I was like, okay, i got to go talk to her. And so during a water break, you know, in our class, I walked by her, and um, all I said was, December 18th? And she said, oh, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, well, we're going to be friends. Clearly, we need to be friends. Earlier this week, I bought tickets for the uh, December 18th show, 4 o'clock. I'll be sitting in row E with some of my friends and Jenny uh, on some plush AMC reclining seats. So I am really looking forward to this movie. Isn't it funny the kinds of things that we look forward to in life? A big football game, the Super Bowl. A family vacation, uh, a birthday party, uh, a concert, our favorite uh, music group. We look forward to all kinds of things, right? And some would say it's these sorts of things that get people through their difficult lives. Their hope, their excitement moves from thing to thing, from event to event. You know, I've heard stories, I'm not exaggerating, I've heard stories about how the Harry Potter movie releases have helped people in tough circumstances to persevere. Harry Potter gives people hope. And so do Super Bowls and concerts and other things, right? And there's nothing wrong with enjoying these things. They're good things. They're wonderful things. But Christianity offers a more substantial hope, right? And that's the second coming of Jesus, Think about this with me for just a moment. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. And that's our hope. Our present situation, of course, is filled with all kinds of trials and difficulties and pains and tensions and temptations and discouragements. Lord knows that's true. And so we're living in this in-between stage, right? After Jesus' first coming, but before Jesus' second coming. We're living in the meantime, and it's not easy. What is easy during this in-between time is to compromise. It's to compromise. When we're faced with the difficulties of life, we're either going to focus on future grace or we're going to focus on present opportunities to escape out of our trials and difficulties. And our society, of course, is putting pressure on us to cave on our convictions, to compromise our values, to compromise our beliefs. Now to be a Christian and to remain a Christian means we're going to have to endure constant pressure to be something different, to believe some different things. Well, the passage we're going to look at this morning answers the question, how do we live in the meantime? How do we live between Jesus' first coming and his second coming in the midst of all kinds of trials and tasks? So let's look at this passage, 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, 
Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. And through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope in God are in God. Pray with me. Father, we come before you this morning and we ask for your presence with us. We ask for your power amongst us. We pray that you would speak. We long to hear from you this morning. We need to hear from you. So would you speak? Would you help us to understand the words of this passage? Would you help them help us to apply it to our lives? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first word of this passage, you'll notice it's therefore. And of course, it tells us something, right? It's a a bridge between the previous section and our passage this morning. And we've spent three weeks looking at verses 3 through 12 of chapter 1. And as you'll remember, that was full of ooing and eyeing over God's amazing grace in, in Jesus Christ. And I hope this past week you took up Jeremy's challenge last week to pray for uh, this church to recognize and be in awe of all of this amazing grace. I hope you've been praying. I hope you've been praying for God to reawaken you to Christ, to reignite the flame of Jesus in your hearts. We heard Jeremy pray for that just a minute ago. So what Peter's doing here is he's changing directions. He's kind of shifting gears just a little bit. This therefore indicates that change. So in light of all of this awesome glory and and future inheritance and grace that is coming, how should we live? How should we live in the meantime? And he gives us three ways to live. Here's the first way. It's found in verse 13. He says, be radically focused. Be radically focused. Now, there's three commands in this verse. You'll notice that. But in the original language, they kind of flow together. And what he's trying to say is be radically focused in particular on future grace. Notice he says, first, prepare your minds for action. Prepare your minds for action. Literally, gird up the loins of your mind. Okay, so so that's, that's kind of strange. Gird up the loins of your mind. What does that mean? Well, in ancient times, people wore these, of course, long flowing garments, and and girding up the loins meant grabbing those garments between your legs, tucking them into your belt, and then getting going, you know, start running to, to the place you need to be. And so girding up your loins means to kind of roll up your sleeves and get to work. It means be ready for action. Uh, It means to be prepared and urgent. 
So he's saying, get your mind, brother and sister, for action. Get, get your mind, brother and sister, ready for action. So hope-filled Christians, they don't just relax and coast into heaven. Jesus is coming back so I can just relax and sit back and, and everything's going to be taken care of. No, hope-filled Christians are full of energy and intentionality. They're on the move. It's not just sit back and take it all in. It's seize the day by God's grace and go after it. Gird up your loins. And that's what hope does to the Christian. Is that how hope is functioning in your life? Is hope putting you on the couch or is it putting you into the action? A Christian hope ought to put us into the action or, or put another way, if we really believe Jesus was coming back, if we truly believed in all this inheritance that's awaiting us, we're going to be on the move for Jesus. We're going to have a singular radical focus, the kind of focus that would clarify and reconfigure our priorities. And this is because in Christ, hoping in Christ frees us up from being overly concerned and preoccupied, right? Because our future is secure. And so we can focus on what God wants us to focus on when we hope in Christ. Now, Peter also says here, be self-controlled. You notice that's kind of the second command he says in verse 13, or more literally, be sober-minded. Think about drunk people with me. Maybe you've seen drunk people in your life. They are in a stupor. They're delusional. They're disconnected from reality, right? And there's lots of spiritually drunk people walking around. There's, there's lots of spiritually drunk Christians walking around. Spiritually lethargic and drowsy, intoxicated by the world's allurements. And so what Peter's doing here is he's throwing some water on us. He's saying, wake up. Get sober. You know, there's a way of living that becomes dull to the reality of God, that is anesthetized to the attractions of the world or by the attractions of the world. And when people are lulled into such a drowsiness, they forget their hope. And they concentrate only on earthly things. But sober-minded people, they're different. They're uh, realistic. They're reasonable. They're self-controlled in this present age. And so uh, Peter's saying, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober-minded. And then lastly, he says, set your hope fully on future grace. So you've got to be mentally alert. You've got to be clear-headed, okay? But you've also got to fill up your mind with something. And that something is this uh, future grace. Now, this is more than just I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. That'd be kind of nice. I hope Christ comes back at some point and restores the universe to God's standards. That'd be kind of nice. No, this is supreme confidence. This is Peter saying, I am confident that Jesus will come back in the midst of of these suffering and these trials. I am confident that this is going to happen. You know, as I think about December 18th and, and Star Wars and, and all that stuff, 
Um, you know, if you talk to me for, for 10 or 15 minutes, if you looked at my f- Facebook wall right now, you, you know I'm not only very excited and, and anticipating the release of this movie, but you, you'll know that, well, this reality, this, this Star Wars movie coming out, it impacts me every day. Every day, I talk about it. It's kind of ridiculous. Ask my wife. But how much more should our hope in Christ, which is infinitely more glorious and important, impact my daily life and yours? Now notice it says, set your hope fully on this grace. So this is an undivided confidence, right? This is an undivided hope. You know, with some some things, halfway gets you far enough, but with hope... It's not even in the good people that that are left behind now that Jeremy and Seth are going to be leaving. Our ultimate hope is in the second coming of Jesus. It's seeing him descend from the heavens in glory, trumpets blaring, the whole earth shaking with anticipation. It's being witness to the King of kings, the Lord of lords, coming from the heavens to bring final restoration and rescue to us. It's God being with his people. This is our hope. And so Jesus is the ultimate pastor and shepherd that we are waiting for. So listen, um, I'm not just speaking highfalutin uh, religious language here. I'm I'm not throwing out uh, religious platitudes because that's what pastors do. This is true, and it is gloriously true. And perhaps God has us in this place of waiting as a church because we need to revisit this truth. Because we need to believe this truth and hope in this truth more than perhaps we have. So fix your gaze on Jesus, our shepherd, who will come again. Set your hope fully on that grace. So that's the first way to live. Be radically focused on future grace. What about the second way? But look at verses 14 through 16. The second way is to be radically different. Radically different. You'll notice in verse 15, the main command here is to be holy. It's to be holy. And holy means to be separate. It means to be set aside or consecrated for a new purpose. And so you think about the furnishings of the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament. They were cleansed for a particular purpose. You know, you can't have your Cheerios in a bowl from the tabernacle. That's just, that, that'd be strange. And so we're anointed, we're cleansed, we're set aside too for a special purpose. To glorify God, to serve him in this world, to be morally pure. Notice the quote in verse 16. It says, For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. And this is pointing back to a, a group of commands in the book of Leviticus. And those commands, commandments were there to make sure Israel, the Old Testament people of God, that they were different from the surrounding pagan nations. So God wanted them to stick out like a sore thumb. He wanted them to be a peculiar people, to be different So holiness is good for holiness' sake, yes. But here he's talking about, in Leviticus, he's talking about holiness for the sake of mission, interestingly enough. And notice it also says, be holy in all you do. 
in all you do. You know, we don't mind being holy in some of the areas of our lives, right? But in every area of our life, that's really difficult. So sometimes, like we talked about earlier, we end up compromising. You know, personal trials in our lives, they tempt us to fudge a little on holiness. Uh, Society, again, is putting this pressure on us Christians to change. The more we stick out, the more we're going to get pushed back from the greater society. The more we're going to become the minority in our culture, the more our voice is going to be shut out. And these are our fears, right? Well, the Lord's word to us this morning is crystal clear. Be holy, be different in every way. Don't compromise, church. And listen, we're not about to become the moral or cultural minority. We already are. We already are. And in many ways, Peter's readers were too. And rather than giving, um, giving ground, Peter's exhortations is to hold ground, to redouble our efforts, to be clear with our convictions, to grow in holiness. Yeah, notice the dynamic in verses 14 and 15. And it's interesting. Peter says, don't conform to our old selves, right? We still struggle with these evil desires in our hearts. We're, we're tempted to go back to the former days of ignorance, this reminds me of The Office. You've watched the show, The Office? Some of you have, some of you haven't. It's about uh, this guy named Michael Scott. He's the uh, fairly inept but interesting manager of a mid-sized paper company in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And, um, you know, he, he's the kind of character you, you kind of like, and you're, you're certainly rooting for him, um, but he is, um, he is inept. You know, he, he's, he's pretty annoying. There's a guy named Todd Packer, it's one of his buddies from the past who comes in every, every you know, 10 episodes or so, and he is horrible. He's a terrible influence on Michael Scott. Terrible influence. And so you're watching your favorite character slip up just a little, or maybe a lot, but you're rooting for him to overcome. You're rooting for Michael Scott to overcome. Well, that's kind of like our past too. They come back to haunt us. They come back to tempt us to slip up just a little bit, or maybe a lot. But God here is calling us back to not conform to those old ways, to not conform to our old self. Do you see what Peter is asking us to conform to? You see that? Verse 15 and 16. He says, don't conform to your old self, but conform to God, our heavenly Father. Don't have the character of our old self. Don't have the character of the world but have the character of God, our Heavenly Father. I want to take just a few moments to point out something in this passage that as I started to meditate through this section this past week, it it kind of blew me away. What's behind this commandment to be holy is the wonderful gift of spiritual adoption. Now, where am I getting that from? Look at verse 14. As obedient, and here's the word, children, As children, be holy. So what motivates our pursuit of holiness? Is it simply duty? Is it simply um, to to earn God's favors, to to make sure God likes us better? No, what motivates our pursuit of holiness is, according to Peter, our spiritual adoption. We're children 
We're children of God. God has given us this new life. He has made us his children. And so he looks at us as beloved children, and he says, now live like my children. Kids, you know, they, they want to please their parents. But here's the remarkable piece about this section. Yes, God has adopted us as sons and daughter. We are legally adopted. The papers have been signed. But he has also given us his nature. In 2 Peter, same writer, uh, next, next book, one over from here, Peter says that we, Christians, participate in the divine nature. And that's why Peter says here in, in our passage to be holy as our Father is holy. He's saying be like your dad. Be like your heavenly Father. Now think about human adoption. Uh, in, in human adoption, you take certain risks. You know, there's interesting tensions as the kids get older and they start to ask questions. And they certainly don't participate, though, in our natures, right? Even though they're legally our children. But with God, it's different. There are no tensions. There are no risks. We're God's children not only legally, but over time in our natures. We have the divine nature in us because of Jesus. It doesn't mean that we're God or we can become gods, but it means that we can become like God our Father. It's like asking my son Sam to be like me. Now, I, I know most of you think that Sam looks a lot like Jenny, and praise God for that. But, I mean, he's my boy, and I'm his father, and of course I'm a dude, so he's going to, over time, naturally, probably, be like me. He's got my genes. And if we're united to Jesus in faith, that's what happens when you become a Christian. You're united to Christ. Well, then we've got some of Jesus' genes, so to speak, in us. Because Jesus lives in us. And so there's the good news of being adopted into God's family. The, The papers are signed. We are legally his. We are one of his children. We're safe. We're secure. We've got this inheritance. But there's more good news. We can actually resemble our Heavenly Father. We can look like Him by looking more and more like His Son, Jesus. That's some good news, too. That's some hopeful news as well. You know, God doesn't just look at Christians as forgiven but distant people, and then He slams us with these commandments to be holy and different. No, He he looks at us as beloved children, beloved children, asking them asking us to live like spiritually revived and reawakened people. And so, yes, we are strangers in this world, but we are not strangers to God. And that's what helps us to be holy and different. That's what motivates us to be holy, not because we can earn our salvation, not because you know, we can secure more of God's favor, not because God will bless us materially, materially if we obey him, but because we are his children. That's amazing. That's amazing truth. And I hope you, as you pursue holiness in your life, that you will pursue that holiness as a child of God. So that's the second way we see um, how we live in the meantime. Here's the third way. Be radically fearful. Be radically fearful. Verse 17. Let me read this to you. Since you call on a father who, who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent Fear. 
And you might be thinking, you know, I thought Christians weren't supposed to be afraid. You know, don't fear the world. Don't fear circumstances. Don't fear the future. Don't fear people. God's going to take care of us. And and those things are absolutely 100% true. But there is one good fear. And that's fearing God. You know, sometimes we think that once we become Christians, God's not our judge anymore. He's just our father. But Peter corrects us here. God is our father, absolutely. But he's also our judge. You know, what's important is having a right kind of fear as it relates to God. Now, some people have no fear of God, and that prevents them from walking with God and having a relationship with God. You know, there's no posture of humility. There's no submission to him. There's, there's no gratefulness and thanksgiving. There's no sense of, of God being higher and glorious. And that's going to destroy any kind of relationship that we may have with God. Much of the world has no fear of God, and that's why they don't relate to him. So there's, there's that. There's no fear of God, but there's also the wrong kind of fear that some Christians have. The wrong kind of fear paralyzes us from walking with God. You know, we're so afraid that God's going to judge us at every moment, at every step, that we've totally forgotten his love. Have you ever worked for a boss who is constantly harping on you and and you're always afraid that you're going to do something wrong? And when your boss takes a vacation, it's like the best week of your life. Well, God is not that kind of boss. He is not. So there's no fear of God. There's the wrong kind of fear of God. But then there's the right kind of fear. And that's the kind of fear Peter is talking about in verse 17. It's the kind of fear that's going to propel and energize our walk with God. It's the kind of fear that holds God as Father and God as Judge together as one. When I was in college, um, that's when I became a Christian. Some of you have heard this story, so you'll have to bear with me. Um, I became a Christian early college, and uh, right in the middle of college, um, God really humbled me. And, you know, the first two years of my walk with Jesus I loved God's fatherly care. I loved the grace. I loved it. But I also took advantage of that grace. And so God called me out on on some pretty significant sin and character deficiencies. He humbled me. It was a very painful time. I remember that particular summer I was working in a bookstore and I'd come home and and I'd have dinner with my parents and and, and then I'd go upstairs and, and I would just... I would literally pour myself into the word and pour myself into prayer because he is literally the only person I had. So I'd cling to him. I lost lots of friends during this period of time because of my junk, because of my sin. I felt that fatherly touch. I felt that fatherly love. But in a new way, I experienced God's lordship his rule, and his loving discipline in my life. In a new way, I saw him as as the ruler of my life. He could do with me whatever he wants. In a new way, I feared God. And it created in me this, this soberness, this urgency, and probably most importantly, this humility that I have rarely experienced since then. 
Godly fear, the right kind of fear, will propel and energize your walk with Jesus. Now, godly fear doesn't contradict confidence. You know, think about a confident driver. He also has a healthy fear of an accident. You know, hopefully it'll prevent him from doing anything stupid, right? He's trying to follow the, the, the laws of the land. He's trying to stay in his lane. And so real fear of God as judge keeps us from doing whatever we want to do. I love the ESV version, the, the translation of this passage. It says, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Be fearful throughout the different seasons of your life. It doesn't matter what season that you're living in right now. We're called to be fearful. Life is hard. Life is incredibly difficult at times, but he's called us to fear him and obey him. Maybe right now you are in one of those bad seasons. Maybe you're in a bad season of marriage. Maybe you're, you're feeling things at work are pointless or difficult. Maybe you're a young mom with kids that are totally dominating your life. Maybe your aging parents are looking to you for care. You're a student and you're struggling in school. These are seasons of our life. But in every season, we're called to fear him. And the question for you in your particular season right now, will you keep fearing God? Will you keep fearing him? When John Piper was diagnosed with prostate cancer, he wrote an article, uh, this is probably about 10 or 15 years ago, he wrote an article called, um, Don't Waste Your Cancer. Don't Waste Your Cancer. And we can apply that broadly too, right? We, we can say, don't waste your early motherhood. Don't waste your difficult work situation. Don't waste your, your tough marriage. Don't waste whatever season of life that God has you in. Because these are opportunities to demonstrate faithfulness to God. These are opportunities to live up to your gracious calling as children of God. So how should we live in the meantime? Be radically focused, be radically different, be radically fearful. And now we're about to take communion and what a fitting set of verses, verses 18 through 21, to prepare us for communion. And notice the word in verse 18, for. So what Peter's doing here is he's answering the question, why? Why should I be radically focused and holy and fear God? Well, here's his answer. Look at verse 18, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. And through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Well, Peter's answer shouldn't surprise us because he's already gone here. He's already talked about this grace, this gospel grace. It's like he can't help bringing his readers back to that amazing, unfathomable grace of Jesus Christ. And in verse, I think it's 19, no, in verse 18 it says, you were redeemed. You were redeemed. It means ransomed or bought with a price. 
The reality is that our sin demands a ransom. Someone's got to pay for our, 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 our ransom, or pay a price for our sin. Someone has to make a purchase on our behalf. In ancient times, there would be these slave markets, and, and uh, they would set up these slaves on these platforms, and they would line them up, and, and, and they would be there in chains, dirty, and they would be bruised and, and bleeding because oftentimes masters would, would abuse them. You know, their eyes, would be, their eyes would be cast down because of the embarrassment. They'd be half naked and, and, and ashamed. And then people would, would come up to these platforms. They would purchase these slaves. But every once in a while, there would be these gracious masters who would redeem them. They would buy their freedom. They would set them free from their bondage. And so God went to the slave market of humanity. And he saw you and he saw me on the platform in chains. Enslaved to our own sins, enslaved to our own ways, miserable in our chains. Helpless, hopeless, because there's no payment sufficient to redeem us. All the gold, all the silver, every, every ounce of treasure in the world is not sufficient to make the payment. And he looks upon us on this platform with, with tremendous compassion. And he, and he takes off those chains, those shackles. He cleans our wounds. He carries us off the platform. He signs those adoption papers. He makes us his children. And as we walk away with all kinds of, of hope and joy in our hearts, we glance back and, and who do we see on the platform? We see Jesus, God's very own son. Battered and bloodied and bearing our guilt and bearing our shame. In our place, he stands there. The ransom has been paid. We have been redeemed. One day we will replace this image of a broken and and beaten Jesus of the cross. We will replace it with a a triumphant picture of Jesus on a white horse riding down in glorious victory. So how do we live in the meantime? 1 Peter 1, 13 through 17, that's how. Let's pray. Father, what a gift our salvation is. What a gift our spiritual adoption is. That you would call us children. That you would call us your sons and daughters. What a gift. Father, would you help us as your children to set our hope fully on that grace that will be ours in the future. Father, would you help us to grow in holiness, Lord, as your children, to not compromise. And Father, if you've pricked the hearts of your children this morning, if you've convicted us of sin, would you help us to repent and turn to Christ where we will find tremendous compassion and grace. Father, would you help us to fear you more than we fear people or fear the world or fear the circumstances of our life? Help us to follow you, Lord. Help help this church to walk with you closely during this time of waiting. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.